Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St Albans Five Docs Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. I wonder if you've ever felt something like this. So this is a conversation between a pastor and his wife and it was recorded by the pastor, Keith Miller. I wonder if you've ever felt something like this. Keith said, I could tell something was bothering my wife one evening. She was quieter than usual and didn't look at me as much. Finally, after the kids were put to bed, she said, I don't know what's wrong. What do you mean? I asked. Well, she said, I don't, I just don't feel like a very good Christian. I wasn't sure what to say. I I wanted to tell her that, of course, she was a wonderful Christian, but she didn't look like she was quite ready to believe that. So instead I asked, what do you think is making you feel like that? She said, I haven't had a quiet time for a while. After chasing two small kids all day, I feel wiped out. I'm too tired to read the Bible and pray. Mornings are crazy and the kids don't nap at the same time, so I haven't had devotions in weeks. I'm not even sure I have a relationship with God anymore. I just don't feel like a very good Christian is what she said. And do you ever feel like that? In this morning's passage, we discover the problem that compelled Epaphras, the evangelist who planted the church in Colossae, we discover the problem that compelled Epaphras to visit Paul in prison because he needed advice. Epaphras needed advice. Some people had come among the church in Colossae and were making them feel like second-rate Christians, like not very good Christians. And so Paul, in this passage, gives his response to that problem. So let's jump into verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. You've got to notice the contrast between the empty philosophers hollow in verse 8, and the fullness that's in Jesus. Paul's goal in this short letter, as the way for helping the Colossians avoid wrong paths for growth, Paul's goal is for us to know and feel and see our fullness. That's Paul's goal in this letter, to help us see our our fullness. He used the same word that we see in this passage for fullness. He used it in last week's passage, Chapter 1, verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. From last week's passage, the picture of Jesus was that of fullness. In him, the creator and the redeemer are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's as if Jesus is the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. I've used that quote again. There you go. If he is the still point of our turning world, our lives will be full in him. That was last week. Paul's strategy in this letter is simple. If you're full after dinner, you won't spend the rest of the night scanning the pantry for other things to eat. If you're filled up with the fullness of Christ, there just won't be a temptation for anything more. That's his goal. That's his strategy. And so in order for the uh, the Colossians... To avoid getting enslaved, it's a very strong word, 
let no one take you captive by these hollow and empty philosophies. Paul wants them to understand their fullness, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. So that's the goal that Paul has to help us see and feel and know our fullness. He goes on in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. So somewhat surprisingly, Paul turns to circumcision. This is because circumcision for the people of Israel was a symbol for cutting off, getting rid of the flesh. And by flesh, that doesn't just mean skin. Flesh in the Bible refers to that sinful impulse that we all have, which clings to us like skin to our bones. The false teachers were suggesting there were all sorts of things they could do to kill this sinful impulse, to kill sin. They were saying, obey these rules, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. Obey these things and you'll kill flesh. But Paul says that rules have no power to actually kill the flesh. And so instead, look where Paul takes us, verse 11. In him also you are circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. So Paul points us to Jesus and us in Jesus, us in him. So in him, Paul says, you are circumcised. Your body of flesh was put off. Your body of flesh was killed and it was buried when Jesus died. That's what Paul means by the circumcision of Christ. It's when he died. It's when he was cut off. Jesus took on our flesh, not only our humanity. He took on our flesh. When he died, our flesh died. When he was cut off, so was our fleshly corrupt nature. That's how we get rid of the flesh. But Paul doesn't just keep us buried with Jesus. Paul doesn't want us to stop being just dead. So look at me at verse 12. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. What Paul is wanting us to see is that our lives are in Jesus, which is why he mentions baptism in verse 12. Because at its core, baptism, going down into the water and up again, is being identified with Jesus. That's why when you get baptized, you you get dunked into water and you get held down there just for a little while because that's a symbol of you dying with Jesus. You're being identified with Jesus. And then after a couple of seconds being in the water, you come up the other side of death. You rise into resurrection life. Baptism isn't just a random religious practice that ministers like to tick off. If you're a Christian, baptism says something crucial about you, that which is most true about you. Baptism says that which is most true about you. It says that you are in Jesus. There's nothing more important for you to know about yourself. You are in Jesus, which means his story 
is now your story. When he died, you died. And when he rose, you rose. That's the most important thing about you. Uh, this week has been pretty disruptive for someone in our little um, commune. So there's three houses that the church owns. And one of the families that lives in one of the three houses, as you know, is, is, is moving, has moved this week. And moving is a big deal. Well, if you've moved, you know it's, it's a huge deal. You've got to clean the house. You've got to say goodbye to families and friends you love. You've got to say goodbye to a church family. In many ways, moving is a death. I saw Ali last night. She's sad. She's exhausted. It's been a tough week. But there's a new life that, that, that's waiting for them in Trinidad. Moving is just a little bit like what, what it's like when you become a Christian and what it's like when you symbolically tell us and tell yourself that you've become a Christian when you're baptised. You've died to your old way of life. That's over. That sinful old way of life, it's gone, it's dead, it's buried, and you've risen with Christ. It's a huge deal. And whilst I'm on the topic, if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptised, I would love to speak with you. Baptism won't necessarily do anything to you. It's not magic, but it will say that which is most true about you. It's, a, it's like a physical word. It will say it to yourself and it will say it to all of us and we'll celebrate with you. Continuing in the passage, halfway through verse 13. He forgave us all our sins, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to a cross. So Paul's continuing the intimate association between us and Jesus. So when Jesus died, what was nailed to the cross was the record of our sin. We're entwined. Our consciences, they have a tendency to hang on to things of which we're ashamed. Passage says, God has set them aside, nailing the record of them to the cross. Verse 13. Which brings us back to fullness. Paul's strategy is for us to know our fullness in Jesus. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him. And if being a Christian is all about knowing ourselves connected to Jesus, Finding the small circle of our life, this is your life out here, finding the small circle of our life, not out there, but in the bigger circle of Jesus' life, if that's what it is to be a Christian, then there are no gradations to Christianness. You are in Jesus. That's what being a Christian is. It's impossible to not be a very good Christian. There isn't a list of things to do that will make you a better Christian, quiet times, giving money away, whatever it may be. There's no such thing as a second-rate Christian. If you have Jesus, you have everything. From last week, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you have Jesus, you have God in his fullness. You, your life is in God, as we'll look at next week. If you have Jesus, you've got the creator and the heir of all things. You're, you're in him, and so don't let anything in this world Make you want to sell your life for it because in Jesus, it's yours anyway. As Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth. If you've got Jesus, you've not only got the image of the invisible God, you've got God, you've got the creator and the, uh, the heir of all things. You've got the redeemer, the one who loves to put things together again, the one who is all about resurrection life. 
and he's working that in your life now. If you've got Jesus, you've got everything. You'll only hear this here. Jesus is like a Russian doll. You know those Russian dolls with the things inside? In him are all the blessings you could ever want. If you've got Jesus, you've got everything. You're full. And so verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regards to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So he uses the word therefore, which just means it's based on what he's just said. So if you've got Jesus, you've got everything. That's the point he's making. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you. In Jesus, God has judged us righteous without blemish and free from accusation. That was last week. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you. For the Colossians, the potential judgment that was coming from others was with regards to a spiritual criteria that they had in their time, whether they celebrated certain festivals or kept certain days. For us, it's any criteria that suggests that there's a gradation to our Christianness. So when do you feel like a lesser Christian? It could be with regards to keeping certain religious days in the church calendar. You might do that, and you might feel superior to others and judge those who don't. Or you might not do that and feel and be a little bit judgy towards those who do. It might be with regards to where you stand on the political spectrum, judging each other on in that regards. Don't let anyone judge you because God has already judged you free from accusation, without blemish, holy. But I've got a question. When we're looking at verse 16, how do we go about obeying it? Don't let anyone judge you. Because the instruction isn't directed towards the judgmental or religious person telling them to stop judging other people. It doesn't say let, uh, don't let anyone judge you. Wait a second. It's not saying stop judging other people. It's not speaking to the perpetrator of judgment. It's speaking to the victim of judgment. And I think this is pretty cool. It gives the victim agency. Don't let them judge you. Of course, this doesn't mean physically keeping them from speaking or anything like that. There's no coercion here. Don't let them, don't let anyone judge you. So Eleanor Roosevelt, the former president's wife, once said, no one can make me feel bad without my permission. And the whole civil rights movement in the American South was partly about changing oppressive laws, but at the heart of that movement was a rethink about the role of the victim. It was about teaching the victims of unjust laws to refuse the narrative in which those laws were placing them, to refuse to stand where the oppressor wanted them to stand, to not allow themselves to be judged by the colour of their skin, but by the content of the character. And that's what Paul means here. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you. You have fullness in Christ. Let that fullness sink in and judgments simply won't stick. And it's worth saying as well, when Paul says don't let anyone judge you, that includes you. Don't let anyone judge you. In giving your life to the Lord Jesus, you also give 
your judgment to him. Whatever it might be that you're hanging on to, a sin you'd prefer to keep in the dark, it was nailed to the cross. It's dead and it's gone. You've been forgiven. You've been judged righteous and without blemish. And as Andrew Cade once said to me, who are you to tell God that he got the judgment wrong? That's verse 16. Let's look at verse 18. Do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions puffed up without cause by a human way of thinking, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. So briefly, I remember when I was in year eight, and just after I'd become a Christian and read the verses that I I mentioned to you last week, just after I read the verses, um, I'll say them again because they're so good, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, present you whole in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. After I read those verses, I became a Christian, and up until this experience that I'm about to tell you about, my experience of being a Christian was basically all joy and fresh air. It was awesome. Until I met this, um, this group that was at my high school, and they were a group of Christians. So um, they went to a local Pentecostal church. And so what I'm about to say is I'm not meaning to discredit all Pentecostal churches. This is simply my experience with this small group of believers from this particular church. And by the way, it was, um, it's the same church that Scott Morrison goes to, but I have no idea if it's changed. So I'm, you know, no comment on the church he's going to at the moment. Anyway, initially, this was a while ago, so initially... Um, it was exciting to meet this group of Christians at a pretty secular public high school. But after the initial excitement faded, because I wasn't doing a variety of what I thought were pretty strange things, I wasn't speaking in tongues, I wasn't worshipping in the Spirit, I didn't really know what that meant, but I wasn't doing it, and I hadn't been baptised in the Spirit, which is different from water baptism. Because of those things that I wasn't doing, this, this group of Christians tried to convince me that I wasn't really a Christian, I, I was like a halfway there Christian. And for about two years, I was unsure whether I had the real deal. And so I went to their church, I went to their conferences, and joy turned into confusion. And Paul says, do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on visions and the worship of angels. That's in the NIV. They've lost connection with their head. They've lost connection with their head. I wonder if that's Paul's way of saying that they're off their heads. (laughs) Okay. Um, Okay, and finally, that's not to discredit Pentecostals in general. That is just my experience of that particular group of people. And Paul doesn't want to let anyone disqualify us because in Jesus, we've got everything. That's the point. And um, finally, so in verse 8, Paul says, don't let anyone take you captive. And then in verse 20, don't submit to their rules. If with Christ you died to the elemental principles of the universe, why do you live as if You still belong to the world. Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not uh, touch. It's a really strange use of the word uh, word world there. Um, Why do you live as if you belong belong to the world? If I accuse someone of belonging to the world or being worldly, you probably assume that they were sleeping around or maybe getting drunk. But here Paul says that it's worldly to submit to rules. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. The idea being, if you avoid certain material enjoyments, you'll become more holy. And there's a word for this. It's called asceticism. The idea that if you avoid certain physical things, enjoyments, you'll become more holy. And the classic example of an ascetic is Simeon Stylitis, who lived at um, 400 AD, so a long time ago. He somehow 
lived on a small platform atop a very high pillar for 37 years, as in literally lived up there, slept up there, defecated up there, ate up there, 37 years. Why? To avoid the corruption of the world. But the doctrine of creation, that God created the world and that it's good, was a revolution in the ancient world. We forget that. We take that for granted. But it was a revolution in the ancient world. Except for Jews and Christians, almost all ancient spiritualities understood material things and taking pleasure through them as a threat to the life of the soul. But Christianity, coming out of Judaism, introduced a spirituality that receives and enjoys and gives thanks. A sunset, a good meal, a holiday isn't first a threat, it's a gift. And so we don't follow rules, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, to purify our souls. Instead, we give thanks for the good things in our life. They're gifts. And so in summary... It is possible. It is possible to feel like a not very good Christian. It's possible to feel that way. But it's not possible to actually be not a very good Christian. If you're a Christian, then by definition, you're in Jesus. Your life isn't separate from his. Your life, the dot of your life, is in the circle of his bigger life. You're in Jesus, which means there are no gradations to the Christian life. Even in your worst moments, even in your worst moments, most shameful moments. You are as good a Christian as Jesus is blameless and pure. Now, always, and full stop. You are full in him. Which means when someone makes you feel inferior or when someone suggests there's experiences to be had or rules to add, it ought to be like water on a duck's back. This is authentic Christian living. Authentic Christian living happens from a place of fullness. Because you're full, it overflows into changed lives. As we'll see next week. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much that you've given us yourself and that you've given us the opportunity to find ourselves in you. Father, help us see the reality of your gift, the gift of your son, Jesus, more and more. Help us be filled up with thanksgiving. And we pray that our lives are overflowing with joy and thanks and love in response. In the name of Christ. Amen.